0: Hey, guys, if we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. It is great to see you guys here. Just want to um, just say one thing about um, electing um, uh, LT members. There's just two things I would say. Um, the, the, the first is um, the, what, what we're doing in, el- in electing LT members is extremely important, extremely spiritually important. And and the Bible is very, very clear on the type of people that should be in church leadership. I want everyone who's a member who's going to vote this week to read 1 and 2 Timothy and also Titus. Three books of the Bible. It's going to take you about an hour. And look at what the Bible says about those in church leadership. If you don't, if you if you don't know whether one of the people on the uh, who are, who you can vote for to be on the leadership team fits the character descriptions in those books, don't vote for them. Secondly, if you don't know one of the people on there, don't vote for them because you don't know whether they fit the description. Right? It's actually it. it It may be nice to vote for someone, it may be an ego boost for them, it's actually not loving to the church. And so we've got to really take seriously who we're we're putting into leadership, right? And so I I would ask you guys, because it's really on you, who gets on to be on the leadership team, to be very prayerful and consider as you do it, right? It's very serious, and that's why we've given you the names a week in advance so that you can do, do your homework so that you can pray, that you can talk, and you can consider that. Okay, that's just one thing for uh, this week for you guys, but how about we pray as we look at Mark 9. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, I pray as we look at your word today that you would speak to us. Uh, Lord, for those of us who are tired, I pray that you would energize us so that we can listen to your word. Uh, you, for, for those of us who are distracted by the thoughts and cares of this world, we, we pray for focus. For those of us who are feeling discouraged or down or whatever, and we pray that you would help us to be encouraged as we look at your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Usually when I'm on public transport, I, I like to read a book. I take my laptop to do some work, all that kind of stuff. But I was going into the city this week and I was just uh, I, I was just tired. And uh, so on on, on the way there, I didn't really do any work. But on the way back, I was even more tired uh, after doing some work in the city. And then uh, my phone was running out of battery so I could not listen to anything. I was like, oh, what do I do? So I did what you guys do. We all do this, right? We all do this. I started listening to the conversations that are going on around me. And it was really, really interesting what some of the people were talking about. There's a lady just in the seat in front of me. She was not whispering into a phone. It felt like she wanted everyone to know what she was talking about. And she was talk- at one point she said, yeah, you've got to wonder whether the world's got more to offer than what we've got. And she's talking on the phone, I think to a girlfriend, and she said, yeah, you've got a good job. You've got, you know, got all this stuff. And she goes, yeah, but, but I feel like there's got to be more. And I thought, wow, I wonder how many people are thinking that. Uh, I wonder if this world, if there's more to offer than this world can give. Now, another person was talking about a boss. Uh, there was two guys talking, and, and, but one, one was really just talking about, complaining about their boss and how hungry for power they truly are. They, they want more and more and more power. And then he shifted and he said, it seems like he wants to be great in the world. He wants the world to acknowledge his greatness. And I actually thought about that too. And I, I thought, well, we live in a world where it seems like we, so many of us, want more than this world's got to offer. But we want something transcendental. We, we want something out of this world. We want something, something more than the world. Uh, others of us, well, we want power. We want to, maybe not power for ourselves, but we want to be in touch with true power. Some of us uh, want greatness. And if we can't have it, we will associate with greatness. Have you ever thought why men love to follow sports? I think it is because we see on the field or the court or wherever... We see people who are truly great, truly great at what they do. And therefore, because we don't feel that greatness, we want to kind of be associated with them. So at least we're associated with greatness. We want more than this world has got to offer. And so we associate with smart people or, or great people at sport or even beautiful people because we want something amazing, something glorious, something great. And because we don't find that in the world, we, we go searching for so many, so many places. We escape. Some of us to parting, some of us to world travel, some of us to spending, some of us to jobs, some even worse than those things. Even though those things can be good in and of themselves, we escape because we're trying to find something more. And yet, in God, we can have everything that we're looking for. It's a bit like what C.S. Lewis says when he says this, We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. See, today we're going to see that holiday by the sea is a reality. It's not just a metaphor, but, but it's a reality for us. You know, we're actually going to see what we really want, and we're going to find it. We're going to find, actually, that there's more than this world's got to offer. As we look at this passage, we're going to see three things as we look at this passage. We're going to see true glory, true power, and true greatness. True p- glory, true power, and true greatness. Let's have a look at the first point, true glory. And before we get into chapter 9, I want you to remember what we had a look at last week. Last week, we had a look at Mark chapter 8, verses 27 onwards, where Jesus takes on himself the mantle of the Messiah, I guess, because Peter declares himself as the Messiah, and he basically accepts it. And then he says, I'm going to die on the cross And then he says, guess what? If you want to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. That's what you've got to do. You've got to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow him. You disciples are following me on the cross-shaped path, is what he's been saying. And then he comes to this moment. This moment which, can I just say, on first reading it sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? It's just like Jesus... Meets with Elijah and Elisha, two guys that have been dead for, in Moses's case, over a thousand years. Elijah, hundreds of years. Jesus, turned, you know, is dazzling white. Uh, and some of us are saying, "Well, all hands, oh, it's just—it's hard to believe." Can I tell you why I think this happened? Now, it's not just because it's in the Bible, but there's actually uh, two verses that that, that actually say to me, actually, the disciples saw this and they they passed it along to other people, to Mark, who wrote this down. This is a historical remembering. Have a look at verse 5 with me. It says this, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Light." And here's the bit, verse 6, he did not know what to say. They were so frightened. In, in other translations, it says he did not know what he was talking about. He, he, you get this vibe of, of Jesus is there, Moses and Elijah, and, and Peter just says the first thing that he, that's in his mouth, that comes out of his head. He says, well, 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 how about tents? We'll put up three tents. Uh, that's what we'll do. And you can just think, uh, you know, think of Elijah and Moses just looking at Jesus and going, dude, where did you get this dude from? He just says the first thing that comes into his mouth. And can you imagine Peter being there? Peter, we know from church history, he was the one that gave his information to Mark. And can you imagine Peter's there when Mark reads his first gospel out, the first time that it gets read, and everyone just looks at Peter as if he's an idiot. Peter, you didn't know what to say. How could you not? See, one of the things that you see all the way through the gospels is very, very embarrassing moments for the disciples like this, which shows that the disciples didn't care about how they came across. They just wanted to tell the truth. Now, and here's the other thing. Have you ever met someone, anyone, who tells a lie to make themselves look bad? Now, has anyone lied to you and go, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just a loser at this, when they're actually good or fantastic or even average, No, people tell lies to make themselves look really, really good. Here, Peter doesn't do that. Peter tells the truth. And the truth was, he was so frightened, he didn't know what he was saying. And I think this shows you that actually this happened. But let's move on. What happens in verse 2? Have a look at it with me. After six days, Jesus took Peter and James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there he appeared before them. Sorry. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who was talking with Jesus. Jesus, there, something happens where his glory shines like anything. He, he is so white. and And, and why does Moses and Elijah show up? Why of all the people from our church history, why those two? It is because if you go in the book of Exodus, Moses sees the glory of God and he comes down the mountain reflecting God's glory. Elijah is taken up into God's glory, but here in Jesus is God's glory. He's not a reflection. He he, he doesn't get merely taken up He is God in the flesh, showing his glory. And and what is Mark trying to say from from writing this down? What is Jesus trying to show? He's not just a reflection of God. He is God in the flesh. And it's confirmed in verse 7. Have a look at it with me. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Here is God the Father speaking, just as He did at Jesus' baptism, and He says, "This is My Son." Back in this day, a son would would basically be on the same level in authority as the father, and would do exactly the same things. So, so back in Jesus' day, a son, a father who was a carpenter, would have carpenter sons, and if the son said something, said something in the workplace. Well, that was as if he was speaking for the Father because they were seen as one. And so when God the Father calls his son, the son, he's actually confirming that he is God. And what should we do? We should listen to him. And then have a look what happens. Verse 8. Suddenly, when they looked around, they they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. Only Jesus is left. Why? Why? Because both Moses and Elijah pointed the way to God. And here Jesus is God in the flesh. And so Moses and Elijah did a great job in what they were meant to do. They were meant to point to God and point forward to Jesus. But now Jesus, God in the flesh, is here. There's a sense in which, yes, you read the Old Testament, they're still pointing forward to God. But they've done a great job and the job is done because God in the flesh is now here. God in the flesh is now here. And you see here in this passage, Peter, James and John, they are frightened because they get a glimpse of God. The God in not only the flesh, but God in all his glory And there's a sense in which they get a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. Because one of the great things about heaven is that you will see God in all his glory. And they saw it. And when we we gather together as a church, there's a sense in which we're, we're getting a little taste of heaven As we gather around God's Word, as we hear God's Word preach, as we we pray in response to God's Word, as as we sing God's Word to each other and praise to God through God's Word, as we encourage each other in God's Word, we have a, a small experience that is much like heaven. That is much like heaven. And that's really, really important. Because I think we're all looking for something just a little bit more than this world's got to offer. And when we gather together at church, we are experiencing that. We hear the God of the universe speak to us, and we can pray to him. But, but one of the things, as I look at this passage, you ask, well, why did he take his disciples? Well, Jesus goes on a bunch of mountains to pray or goes off by himself to pray a lot of the time. Why does he take his disciples? Why was it so important for them to see? Now, remember the context. What has Jesus talked about? He's talked about he's the Messiah. He's going to die. And guess what? You've got to follow me on the cross-shaped road. He then will go on and say, I I will die twice in Mark chapter 9. He's going to talk about his death and resurrection. And, And so I think there's a sense in which he's taking his disciples to see this, to see a glimpse of the glory of God for their encouragement. For confirmation that yes, he is the Messiah. And yes, this glory that shines through him means that not only he's the Messiah, but everything he says is going to come true that this encouragement they get from seeing Jesus' glory is meant to encourage them to keep following him, even though they're going to walk on the cross-shaped road. And can you see, therefore, why gathering together to experience a bit of God's glory, a bit of heaven together as we gather, is super, super important for you and I? You see, I dare say some of us go, well, there's sometimes I've got so much on, I've got so many stresses, I've got so many things on. But church is meant to encourage you so you can face those things, so you can face the world. Have you got stresses in your life? Yes, you have, because I have, everyone has. But church is meant to re-anchor your heart, your mind, and your soul to help you understand what's true and not in this world, to encourage you so you can face the challenges of today and tomorrow and the next week and the next week. And so there's a sense in which if you decide, if you say, well, hands, I'm really stressed this week. I've got s- so much. I'm not going to come to church. Guess what? Because, because I, just, I, just need, I just need a break. I need to whatever it is. You're robbing yourself of the encouragement and the strength that God wants to give you to face tomorrow. So, see, church is meant to give you the encouragement that no matter what you face this week, no matter what the world throws at you, you know you're loved. You know you have hope. You know you, have, you are forgiven you know that whatever, God, whatever the world throws at you this week is not the end. Is, is not the end. And so when you get your heart and your mind off the, off the affairs of this world and onto Jesus, that encourages you to face the stresses of this week. And so one of the things, if you want to live a life where the stresses of this world are put in their proper place, don't miss church. Don't miss church. Because if you really get every week what we preach and what we sing and what we pray, your, your vision of God and his glory will become bigger and your stresses will become that much smaller. I'm not saying they will go away. I'm not, I'm not promising that at all but they will be put in their proper place. See, we need that that sense of glory. We need that sense of how glorious God is, and one day we will be taken to that glory. Why? Because it helps us deal with the problems of today. Jesus enabled the, the disciples to see his glory so that they will be able to walk to the cross with him and then start the early church with all its stresses and strains and God allows us to glimpse some of his glory in his word as we gather for many reasons. But one of them is so that we will keep living for him this week and every week. So we see from this passage, we see true glory, but we also see true power. Have a look at verse 14 with me. It says this. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes out his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Here, he, the problem is there's this kid possessed by a demon. And the disciples have, have tried to drive him out, but 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 they can't. There's a big argument around. And can you see who's arguing? There's, there's other disciples. There's a large crowd. And there's teachers of the law maybe arguing that, hey, You can't do this. I thought you followed Jesus. I thought you had this great power, but you can't do this. And notice what Jesus says, verse 19. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. Why does Jesus give such a harsh rebuke? Why does he say that? Well, well, it's kind of like he rebukes them, but then, out of his compassion, he focuses on the boy and his father. Have a look at verse 20. So they, brought, so they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him." But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Can you imagine what it's like to have a child like this? A child who is possessed, who, who, who because of his is gets thrown into the fires and water to drown, to kill him. And so he asks, if you can do anything, what does Jesus say? Verse 23, if you can. Do, do you know who, who you're speaking to, mate? If you can, here the Father is probably going well. Well, if Jesus' disciples didn't have the power to do this, I'm not sure if Jesus does. So, so, Jesus, if you can, and Jesus, wait up, buddy. Do you know who you're speaking to? And he says, everything is possible for the one who believes. For the one who believes, I remember hearing a, pa- a sermon on, on this passage, and, and and the preacher was saying, everything is possible for you who believe. So what you've got to do is have a measure of belief and whatever you believe will come true. So, so if you want something, just believe it's yours and it'll come true. If, if, you want, if you want a great life, believe it, it's yours and you'll come true. And he talked about how you know, he's not a good looking man and he believed that he will get a beautiful wife and he's got a beautiful wife and all this kind of stuff. And can I just say, I think he's absolutely wrong and it's a lie from Satan. Because this belief is not about your belief and how much belief that you've got, as if you can measure it. It's about who you believe in or what you believe in. See, the problem with the disciples is, as we're going to see, they didn't pray. Which implies that they believed in their own power to exercise this demon and it didn't work. And they didn't trust in God. They didn't trust in Jesus as they were doing this. They trusted in themselves. And so that's why why Jesus says, you know, everything is possible for one who believes. It is not the strength of your belief that counts. It is the strength of the one who you believe in that counts. So it's a bit like this. Imagine I fell off a cliff, right? And I'm falling down, and I see a branch. And I grab a hold of that branch. At at that point, it doesn't really matter how how strong my belief is, whether I'm going, yes, I 100% believe that this branch can save me. Or if I just go, oh, I don't know, but I'm just desperate. I'm going to just try. What matters is the strength of this branch to hold me up as I fall. And it doesn't matter the strength of your belief. It matters the strength of the God you believe in. If you believe in God and you believe so much that you want Him to be glorified, not yourself, well, everything, anything is possible. And not anything in the sense that, if I want something, I'll get it, but anything that is part of God's plan is possible. But can you see the beautiful response of verse 24? Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. So, such beautiful honesty. Verse 25, when, when Jesus saw that the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit you deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet and he stood up. You hear, you see the power of Jesus, the power that is over the spiritual world, but power over the physical world as he helps this boy up. Can you imagine being in the crowd? Can you imagine the disciples? Can you imagine everyone there just going, Well, the disciples couldn't do this. Maybe the teachers of law had to go and they couldn't do it. Jesus says it with mere words very, very, very easily. And the disciples ask, Why couldn't we drive it out? And he says, This kind can only come out by prayer. But did you notice Jesus doesn't pray? Jesus didn't pray. Why is that? Because prayer is talking to God, asking God for stuff. Jesus is God in the flesh. He doesn't need to pray. He can just make it happen. But but the disciples have seen the power of Jesus over and over and over and over again. And yet they still don't pray. He is God's power there on tap. But they don't pray. He is a very, very hard situation. But they're going, well, well I've seen Jesus do it. Oh, I can do it myself. Prayer is one of the greatest privileges that we have as Christians. And yet, I am ashamed to say that I don't pray anywhere near like I should. And yet, prayer is one of the main ways we actually encounter the power of Jesus, where we tap in to the power of Jesus God is your heavenly Father who loves you, who's all-powerful, and He wants you to ask Him for stuff. I think that's amazing. A, a few weeks ago, I took my kids down to a spot right near Sydney Harbour. We drove through uh, Kirribilli, um, and uh, and as we're driving through Kirribilli, I point out, I said, kids, that's Kirribilli House. That is where the Prime Minister stays when he's in Sydney, and... Niels is like, let's go and talk to Albo. And I was like, I don't think we can. And they're like, why not? You know, Dad, you pay taxes. You know, you should just knock on his door and go, hey, let's have a cup of coffee with Albo, right? And I said, well, no, you know, because he's he's very busy in this guards area. And and then then Niels didn't take no for an answer. He goes, we should just dodge the, the guards and just run in there. And I said, yeah, we'll probably get shot or something. It's not a good idea, Right. Because he's the Prime Minister and normal people just don't go up and have a conversation with him generally, right? But imagine if one Albo's son in the middle of the night comes to his dad and knocks on his door at 2 a.m. and says, Dad, I really need you right now. I'm sure the Prime Minister will drop everything to talk to his son. And you know, as a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, you have got that ex- access to God, your Heavenly Father, in prayer. That, that, that everything will be put on to one side metaphorically so that he can listen to you. So why don't we pray? Well, I think we don't pray because verse 19... We are an unbelieving generation. We don't pray because we believe in our own ability to make things happen rather than God's ability to make things happen. We all do this. And yet, not praying is to not tap into the greatest power the world has ever known. Yesterday I played basketball down with Corey Uni and um, imagine for a second, just imagine for a second, Michael Jordan rocked up, right? But, but just imagine we're, we're playing and uh, Mike goes, because we're on first name basis, me and Mike, and uh, he goes, oh, oh, could I play with you guys? And we're like, oh, oh no, no, Mike, we've got this. Actually, we, we can win. But, but if you want to sit on the bench, we'll call you when, when we really need you. And for the next hour we just play, and Mike says, oh, I can cut. No, 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 I'm, I'm cool. We got this, we got this. I mean, how stupid is that? He is the greatest player the world has ever seen, and we don't use his power. But how much more stupid it is for us who believe in God to actually put God on the bench of our lives and never pray to him. He is the power infinite power, and we're saying to God, no, 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 sit on the bench, I've got this. What's our problem? Why don't we pray? Verse 19, we are an unbelieving generation. And so what should we do? We should pray. We should pray to our loving Heavenly Father. We should pray to Jesus, who we see has got true power. And finally, let's have a look at the last point, true great greatness. Have a look at verse 30 with me says this, They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him and after three days he will rise. So once again, Jesus is saying again, Hey guys, guess what? I'm going to die. I'm going to go to the cross. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. The disciples did not understand verse 32 and they were afraid to ask him. They were afraid to ask him. Probably out of pride once again, because they didn't want to look stupid, and so they have a different conversation. Have a look at verse thirty-three. We we see Jesus asking them about that conversation. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, "What were you arguing about on the road?" But they kept quiet because on the on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. And you just read that, and you go, "Can you can you get any more stupid, right?" Jesus said guess what guys I'm going to let you know that once again I've told you this before but I'm going to tell you again I'm going to go to Jerusalem I'm going to die, I'm going to suffer, die and then I'm going to rise again and they're like oh I don't know what this means so I'm going to talk about it hey, God, I reckon you know just been thinking about it I think I'm the greatest I think I actually you guys are losers compared to me right and you just go how why, why are you talking like that but notice how Jesus doesn't say your desire for greatness is wrong. Have a look at verse 35. Sitting down, Jesus called the 12 and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He doesn't say if you want to be first, you should, be wrong. You should get that out of your head because that's flat out wrong. He doesn't say, if you want to be great, your desire is absolutely wrong. No, he he redefines what greatness is. Greatness in the kingdom is not having people serve you. It is utilizing your time, your money, your energy to serve people. It It is not having people serve you and say you're great. It is utilizing your time, your energy and your effort To serve others. If you really get that, you won't care what people say about you or whether, even, you won't even care if your needs are met. You will care about serving others primarily. That is your modus operandi. That is what greatness in the kingdom is all about. And you see that kind of greatness sometimes in the world. I I read a book a couple of years ago, and and, um, I've tortured everyone pretty much in leadership with this book. Even if you don't like sports, uh, you've had to read this book. Uh, Gene, in the internship, is going to read the book. And it's called The Captain Class. And, And what the author does is he goes around and looks at the greatest sporting teams of all time who have had greatness over many years, and he sees The common factor is not talent, it's not money, it's not the coach, it's the captain. And one of the things that every one of these captains have is they lead by serving. He talks about Carla Overbeck, who captained the US National Women's Soccer Team. And it talks about when they, they, they won the World Cup. All her, her, all her teammates went on to Ellen and all these different shows and she went home and served her family. When she was asked, at this great ticket-take parade, what she's been doing for the last three weeks, and she goes, oh, just dishes and washing. Well, when they got off the plane, generally in sporting teams, the youngest person on the team actually takes all the bags and stuff. It was Carla Overbeck that, that actually got all the bags It was her that organized all the water. It was her that served and served and served. It was her who was the first one to go to her teammates and say, hey, you look a bit off. Is there anything I can do to help? In the background, serving. Now, you're probably saying, well, Carla Overbeck and all these other captains, they had a book about them. They saw glory in the world, right? But what if no one sees me? What if only God sees me? And can I ask you if you're thinking that? Because I've thought that this week. Why is God not enough? If no one ever praises you for the way you serve at MCC, if no one ever really, you feel never really listened to here at MCC, but God knows how you serve and God can see that and God loves the fact that you've served, why is that not enough for you? Isn't it? Verse 19, we're an unbelieving generation who wants the praise of men more than the praise of God. But hence, how can we serve when it's so hard and no one recognizes the work I put in? Well, you can serve others by noticing that Jesus served you by sacrificing himself for you. See, when you get what Jesus has done for you, and, and on a heart level, you get that, and you love that, and that animates you, that will give you the power to serve and continue to serve and serve others well. See, one of the reasons why we get tired of serving, and sometimes we get tired because we're just doing too much, and that happens, right? But sometimes we get emotionally fatigued because we're not tapping into Jesus, The all-glorious one, the one who shows true glory, true power, true greatness. And we're not reminding ourselves over and over again of his great service of us. When we see on the cross his service of us by dying in our place for our sins, there we will see true glory, we will see true power, we will see true greatness. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that in Jesus we can can see, we can tap into true glory, true power, true greatness. Lord, I pray that we would not look for those things in the things of this world, but come to Jesus, that we will be changed as we encounter him. Lord, for those of us here that need to change parts of our lives because we've seen that we are part of this unbelieving generation, I pray that you would change us Help us to pray that prayer that that man prayed. We believe. Help our unbelief. Help us to show our our belief by trusting in Jesus and what he's done, by, by going after true greatness, by praying to him. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.